Hi, I'm Dr. Christopher Porter, and I am the course director for the AUA's upcoming hands-on urologic ultrasound skills training, which will be held on Saturday, September the 17th. I would like to invite you to register and join me and the faculty and your colleagues for this one-day training event, which will be held at the AUA headquarters just outside of Baltimore. We offer hands-on training shoulder-to-shoulder -shoulder with experts in urologic ultrasound, as well as lectures and panel discussions led by our world-class faculty. Only a few spots remain, so if you would like to join us, register by visiting AUA University. Thanks very much. The following activity is brought to you by the American Urological Association. Good afternoon. My name is Jay Raman, and I am professor of urology at Penn State Health and chair of the AUA's Office of Education. It's my pleasure to host another one of our educational podcasts, uh, podcasts with this specific podcast in our series uh, titled GU Cancer Survivorship. Uh, my guest for today's podcast is Dr. Zach Clausen. Uh, Zach is an assistant professor of urology, as well as being the residency program director at Augusta University Medical College of Georgia in Augusta, Georgia. He completed his residency at MCG uh, from 2011 to 16. Uh, thereafter, did a Society of Urologic Oncology Fellowship at the University of Toronto uh, Princess Margaret Cancer Center, and then returned back uh, to uh, serve on staff at MCG, where he is a, a urologic oncologist, as well as, as I mentioned, their program director. Uh, while he was in Toronto, he completed a master's of science in clinical and epidemiological health services research. And uh, therefore his practice really dovetails not only with um, uh, cancer uh, care, but obviously a lot of the nuances pertaining to uh, survivorship, uh, mental health and, and other such elements. Uh, Zach, first of all, um, on the eve of uh, you and I both going on vacation, uh, thanks so much for, for taking some time to join uh, us this afternoon. Of course, Jay. Thanks so much for the invite and for hosting and for the AUA for the invitation. So um, I'll maybe just start with, you know, just like high level um, question, just to sort of set the stage for our audience and, and maybe get everyone to sort of understand what the what the importance of this is so really you know straightforward question you know what what is the importance of you know cancer survivorship but also patients having some sort of cancer survivorship plan as they embark on this uh, journey of care yeah i think you know we're all surgeons and we focus on in the clinic the the plan of treatment which often involves an operation but you know with the combination of an operation and some phenomenal uh, systemic therapies people are living longer with with a with a diagnosis of, of cancer whether it's uh, still active disease or whether it's a cure and as we know between operations and, and therapy the side effects and some of the ramifications of what we do to get the people to this point um, can have implications and i think um if you look at the if you look at the global landscape, whether it's prostate, kidney, bladder, people are living longer. And I think, you know, the Commission on Cancer in 2016 really started to to realize this and sort of took their cancer centers under their umbrella and and started to really highlight, you know, geo cancer survivorship. Um, you know, even as you mentioned, I started residency in 2011. This was still relatively a new topic and sort of the, the 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 buzzword of survivorship care and survivorship plans, but it's really become uh, important for our patients as 
as we've improved outcomes and, 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 and life expectancy. And certainly as I've moved into my practice over the last four years, it's something I, I really, I really um, enjoy talking to patients about and getting them aligned with the proper resources. So, you know, it's, it's interesting. I, I think it's, it's a key point that you sort of underscore, which is when you see patients, particularly those that have more maybe advanced or serious cancers in the spectrum of what we see in urology, I feel like the first tendency is, you know, we kind of dive bomb right down on um, therapy, right? right. You, you know, you need chemotherapy, radiation therapy, you need an operation. And, and, and then I, I hate to say it, but sometimes I feel like the back end of it, which is really the survivorship is, is I, almost an afterthought, right? We're, we're, yeah. we're so focused on the treatment. Um, and, and I feel like what you're suggesting is, yeah, that that's not untrue, but, but that probably the, the whole sort of survivorship really should permeate earlier in the discussion than maybe it does generally. Yeah, I think a good a good model that I live by is that the survivorship starts with the initial consultation, right? So whether this is a localized prostate cancer, which you intend to cure the patient, or it's somebody you're seeing for a cytoreductin nephrectomy versus upfront immunotherapy, and you know their life expectancy may not be the same as that localized prostate cancer patient. It's it's an individual journey that starts when they meet you. And I think what I've found is that the patients, when you look at it on this broad landscape, they look at you as a, as a physician, not just a technician that's going to do X, Y, and Z to them and then see what happens. And I think it's, I, I personally think it's helped with a lot of relationships with patients and families. And I think whether it comes naturally or you learn this or you just sort of appreciate it, I think it's something I try to teach my residents as well is that it's a, it's a whole process. It's not just this one day where you're doing a robotic prostatectomy or cytoreductive nephrectomy. It's the whole process. So, you know, practically speaking, you know, I think what we see a lot of people say is, you know, that practicing medicine is, is tight, right? You know, you, you have less time in your office visits. What used to be a 60 minute visit is now a 40 minute visit. Um, you've got a lot of sort of other uh, uh, ancillary responsibilities, pre-authorizations, whatnot, that are permeating maybe in between in your busy clinic day. So just practically speaking, how, how do you sort of carve out time or how do you sort of create the time when, when maybe the time is tight um, to incorporate this as part of your practice at that, say that early visit, that initial yeah. discussion point? It's a great, it's a great point. I mean, we're all pulled multiple directions for all the things you've listed and, and, and many more. I think it's, it's, it's built into the message that we would give 15 years ago when we weren't thinking about this. It's, it's the explaining what the operation means, what the what the treatment options are, what the side effects are, engaging the family, telling them that they're important. They're going to pull help pull Mr. Smith or Mrs. Smith through the operation and the recovery and just sort of laying out a plan based on what you foresee. You say that this is the way I think it's going to go. This is what's going to happen afterwards. This is how the follow-up is going to be. This is how long it's going to take to recover. So it's you're right. There's no extra time. There's actually less time, as you mentioned, but it's the it's the package and the message at that first visit that then sets the stage for the subsequent treatment follow-up. And then maybe one other practical question um, in your practice is, so who who participates in this process? So in this whole cancer survivorship at Medical College of Georgia, uh, Dr. Zach Claussen's practice, is that you? Is that uh, do you have any sort of ancillary framework that helps you sort of deliver elements of the survivorship? Yeah, great point. I mean, like everybody, you know, we're short on staff, and and, and things have happened over the last couple of years. But 
the core of it, it starts with, it starts with me, I think, because you have to have the, you have to have the, you have to have the desire and the, the, um, the, the, the motivation to do it. But then you rely on other people for sure. Of course, your, your residents are well-tuned with how you deliver these messages. I have a nurse navigator that comes in with all of my patient visits. So she's the first point of contact. You know, when we're going nine directions, they have her phone number to her desk. She's, they got her email and she knows she knows sort of what my my shtick is, sort of speak, and then you rely on your ancillary, other ancillary services like psycho oncology. I mean, we have a great psycho oncology team, and so particularly with, let's just say, testis cancer patients, this is a, a a big diagnosis at a young age, and I offer the services to to all these patients. Um, yeah. I offer the to all the cystectomy patients because they're going to have a big life change in operation. It's going to take months to recover. And anybody who sort of, you know, that clinical gestalt of, of, of somebody who I think would benefit from it, you know, the guy who's upbeat, who's got good family support, maybe we don't mention on the first visit because I think he's going to be okay, but you sort of read body language and you see, you just have a, have an acumen of, of offering these services because these folks are trained to do this. You know, you and I are in the clinic and we're trying to figure out what the right treatment approach is or give them the options. And I think that's always been my message with these sort of discussions or, or presentations or articles is we don't ask people to, to be psycho-oncologists or to be psychiatrists. We ask them to be human beings, clinicians, and have the acumen to know when to make the referral or at least offer to make the referral. And, and just um, ballpark, you, you know, when you identify these patients who you think may benefit from some psycho-oncology um, uh, consultation. How, how many, I mean, do, do 10%, 20%, half your patients take you up on this? I mean, how many say, yeah, that 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 would be really appealing? Just ballpark in your practice. Yeah, I think I have to break it down a little bit by disease. I think probably 25% of the testis at some point, I would say probably one third to 40% of the, of the cystectomy patients. Um, other people where I, I can tell, and we maybe have started a discussion about, yeah, I'm feeling depressed, doc. I feel tired. I feel unmotivated. Those patients are probably going to go probably 50 to 60% of the time. Mm -hmm. And the, the, that, that part of our cancer center is fantastic. I mean, if, if somebody needs to be seen that day, they'll work, they'll, they'll work it out. If it's sort of a routine visit, they'll get them in within a week or two. It's, it's a, it's a very much um, sort of stratified based on what your clinical suspicion is for needing these sure. folks will see them uh, based on urgency. So I, I feel like this topic that we've just sort of delved into kind of dovetails with what, what I'd like to sort of get your thoughts on, which is, um, you know, when you look at GU cancer survivorship, there's physical health and then there's the mental health elements of it. And, and I think you, you sort of alluded to some of the, the mental health um, aspects, but may, maybe just give the audience a sense of, um, you know, mental health and, and GU cancer survivors and, and some of the, the, the key points that you think of when you see these patients? Yeah, I um, probably over the last eight to 10 years, it's kind of become one of my, my research priorities and certainly a clinical priority is the mental health of our, our cancer patients. And again, I'll kind of break it down a little bit by, by disease state. I think if you look at the data, um, we've done some data with SEER and some data in, in Canada as part of my, my thesis work. You know, from what we, from the patients that we treat, there's no question that bladder cancer patients are the highest risk for, for depression, for suicidality, for anxiety, for, you know, all the reasons that 
you know, based on the operations we treat them with and the comorbidities they come in with, right? So I think that the prevalence in, in these patients is probably, in, if you look at the data, probably in the 50 to 75%, if not higher, to be honest. Um, so these are the, if, if anybody takes anything away from this podcast, it's that the bladder cancer patients are the highest risk. And then you move into a totally different age group and less common, obviously, than bladder cancer, the test cancer patients. And by definition, they're all anxious and angry and frustrated and completely taken aback by what's going on. And so I think you're dealing less with the comorbidities and the depression, but the anxiety and the fear of the unknown, you know, fertility issues, all these things that can come into a, a testis cancer diagnosis. And so how I talk to these men is much different than how I may talk to the bladder cancer men in the sense that, you know, they see me at least for hopefully the foreseeable future close to them in age. Um, and I think that helps connect uh, with these guys and to let them know that what they're feeling is normal and, and know that, that whatever anger, frustration, bitterness, um, anxiety, even depression, it's all normal. Obviously with prostate, it, it's, it's, it's our most common malignancy and, and, and it's a, it's a wide range. I mean, we see the patient with three plus three, you're gonna put on active surveillance who looks like they're gonna have a panic attack. And mm -hmm. you see the patient on ADT who's fatigued and worn out and depressed, and you see the, the gamut in between. And so that's, that's a, that one doesn't have as much of a cookie cutter approach because there's a whole range in that, in that spectrum for those patients. Yeah, no, I, I think um, it's, it's interesting. I, I, you know, a lot of my practice is prostate cancer and, and to the exact point that you made is a spectrum that which you see, right? Yeah, and, right. and biologically, it's interesting. You see some of these patients who have low volume, great group one, Gleason six. Yeah. And, uh, you know, medically speaking, you're telling them, you're almost giving a pat on the back, you don't have cancer, right? Yeah. I mean, that's essentially, and they are looking at you, their eyes are like saucers. That's right. Um, you know, they're pale, you know, and and you realize that that biologically is one thing, but mentally the way they're processing this cancer diagnosis yeah. is vastly different than 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 what I would expect as somebody who perhaps is not living through it and who knows sure. about the biology of their disease. That's right. No, it's very true. I mean, I think, and at the same time, you see the patient that has a PSA of 400 who probably doesn't grasp how serious this is and how and what treatment they're, they have coming for them, right? I mean, I think because we see so many patients with prostate cancer across that spectrum, it's almost the mental health sort of assessment and the and the discussions around that for these patients is very much individualized to the point where you take body you take body language and 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 what they're telling you as, as sort of your cue is how you're going to frame this. So, you know, as we look at cancer survivorship, the the, the good thing with a lot of the urologic malignancies is that. Uh, the, the, the treatment armamentarium has grown significantly, right? Bladder cancer, you have all these immunotherapy options now. Um, prostate cancer, obviously the growth of treatments for advanced prostate cancer is quite limitless. Um, and, and so, and those are just two such examples. And, yeah. but, but the resultant point is, is this concept of uh, financial toxicity that, yeah. that I mean, you know, these, these drugs, these therapies are expensive. Talk to us a little bit about, you know, how does financial toxicity play into um, your lens of looking at, at survivorship? 
Yeah, it's a it's a great point, Jay. I think I, I, I credit folks like Dave Penson who have done a lot of work in this in this area and given phenomenal talks at ASCO meetings and whatnot. And and they've really delved into really the impact of it. And we certainly we see it every day, but when you see a presentation or data such as 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 the, as 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 presentations that Dave has given, for example, I mean, it's huge in our practice. And you know, if you look across the board, about 38% of of patients will be unable to either meet payments or have financial difficulties from from their treatment. You know, I work in a in a in in Augusta, Georgia, which is you know two hours outside of Atlanta and second biggest city, but still our catchment area is four hours around Augusta, and we're talking some of the poorest and the poorest access to health and, and socioeconomic struggles as you're going to find anywhere in the country. Mm-hmm. And and I think that's even magnified in a practice like mine is that you have almost every patient's going to have some sort of difficulty, whether it's just getting gas money to come to your appointment. So I use more phone visits and telehealth now. You know, we've learned that through the pandemic. But we're talking you know, we rely on the assistance programs to make this even remotely affordable, and I'd be remiss to think that it is even affordable with the with the um, the, uh, the, the 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 these programs that we have. So, I think it's a huge component of most practices. Certainly, it is for mine, and it's hard to sort of balance that what you know is best for the patient based on the data and what is feasible from a financial standpoint even just coming for a treatment every three weeks for x y or z treatment it's it's not easy yeah no i I think the 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 sort of practice environment you're in is is somewhat similar you know in hershey our catchment area is you know we're about 90 minutes from philly about 75 minutes from baltimore but when you go to the northern and western parts of the state between us and pittsburgh's three three and a half hours so the catchment area is fairly long and wide. And and in reality, um, if you have a more advanced type of cancer, uh, you are their person's, I mean, you are that person's doctor. That's right. There is no local option. Let's put it that way. And, um, and, you know, I had somebody who came and saw me just, what was it, two weeks ago, he came from two and a half hours away. And I'm thinking to myself, oh, for the love of God, that's five hours driving with gas at $5 a gallon. And it's crazy. uh, It's crazy. And, um, and, and, you know, I think it's, it's one of these things that you go through the nuances of, you know, obviously you have the guidelines, you have great evidence on these therapies, mm-hmm. and then you think to yourself practically, okay, you can, you, sure, you can write the prescription, you can order it, but what's the impact on this person being able to, I don't know, you know, get a gallon of milk, uh, buy groceries for the week, uh, God forbid, go on vacation at some sure. point or, or yeah. any of those things. What do you think about... And, and tell me in your practice, so so for those patients, for example, that are getting um, uh, systemic therapy of any sort, it, it, is that managed through the, the urology department? Does that go over to the medical oncologist? I tell you, at our place, our medical oncology colleagues manage a lot of the advanced cancer infusions. And so I'll be honest and say, we don't perhaps appreciate, frankly, as urologists, as much of the financial toxicity because it's, it's essentially managed through that infrastructure. What's it like for your for your practice setup? Yeah, Jay, I think it's very similar to yours. I think I my sort of general rule for myself and just the way it works best in my practice, I've got a great relationship with my bed onks. If, I'm, if somebody's requiring an injection, whether it's immunotherapy or chemo, they're going to them. And, and I'll, you know, I'll, I'll give the, I'll give the second generation 
medic medications for prostate. Um, I like treating these prostate cancer patients and keeping them in my practice. But a second that someone needs adjuvant Pembro for you know RCC or they need docetaxel or or any any injection of any sort, I typically will send them to Medonc and 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 this is what we were talking about before with these multiple visits, you know, every two to three weeks. Let's say, I mean, this this is a challenge. And I think what I've tried to do is reach out and find even medonks that don't necessarily specialize in geo oncology in smaller towns closer to home, and just call them up and say, hey, this gentleman's going to need this or this every three weeks. I know you primarily do lung and breast and colorectal, but do you think you can do it? It's going to save them a lot of a lot of a lot of hassle traveling up to Augusta. And invariably people are willing to help. And I think these are the things we try to do to just make it a little bit more manageable for the patient. And and can you comment at all about this concept of financial toxicity and treatment compliance and survival and, and cancer outcomes? Is there, I mean, is there any association uh, with those three variables? Yeah, so certainly some recent work over the last couple of years. I mean, we're talking out-of-pocket costs, facility costs, physician fees, prescription meds, labs, imaging. And there's been several studies that, you know, it's, these are all epidemiological studies, so we're talking association, not causation. But these patients certainly do have worse outcomes. And and if we're if we're delving into if we were to, if you and I were to write the discussion of those papers, it's all these things that we're talking about, right? So somebody isn't as well connected as you mentioned. Were there were there a doctor? They may not have a primary care doctor, and their inclination is if I can't make a three-hour trip for an injection that may or may not help me, but I need to put food on the table, they're going to maybe opt for the for 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 taking care of their family. And subsequently, these outcomes are poorer than somebody who either as the financial means or lives closer to a, a major medical center where they're giving these treatments. So, so when we do, when we talk about sort of GU cancer survivorship, we've been speaking about certain diseases and then we've been speaking about generalization. So um, I, I'm going to maybe take you on like a little island hopping adventure at this sure. point. And, and maybe we'll just sort of pick each of the major GU cancers that we all deal with. And I'd like to get your thoughts on some of the salient um, salient survivorship issues with each. So let, let's start with prostate. You mentioned, I mean, obviously, that's probably the most common thing that most urologists will see in practice. So what are some of the key points that you would want the listener to take home with regards to prostate cancer survivorship? Yeah, I think I'll break it down by local and sort of advanced disease for prostate GI. I think for local, it's it's a side effects of treatment. So we we know it has an effect on sexual function, urinary function, even bowel function, particularly those getting radiotherapy. And um, I was fortunate to be on a, a collaboration with Chris Wallace, uh, looking at um, looking at outcomes of of regret in in in, in a paper that he led, published in JAMA Oncology uh, a few months ago, and it was it was a very telling set of data in the sense that 16% of patients that undergo radical prostatectomy have regret down the line. 11% uh, of radiotherapy patients had regret for the treatment. 7% of active surveillance. What was interesting about the analysis, and this is the the methodological genius of Chris Wallace, is that he, we then he then adjusted for side effects and counseling. And if if he adjusted for all of these factors. All those associations went away and sort of the conclusion from that was we have to counsel patients on this and really really hit home on these side effects and understand that a gleason 7 
potential nerve spare is going to have a different outcome than a Gleason 8 or a Gleason 9 in terms of how you're going to approach the operation, what the expected outcomes are based on all, all the things we know about what their erectile function is coming in, what it is uh, expected to be going out, and really set those expectations at those first or second clinic visits before the operation. And the onus is on us as clinicians for these patients because I think what people know and what they are expecting to have afterwards is based on what we tell them and how mm -hmm. we counsel them. And it's, it's, it takes time. And we talked earlier about how we have less time, but I think these are important discussions. I think this paper really hammers home that the counseling of these patients is, is key. Switching over to sort of the more of the advanced, I mean, certainly we know uh, ADT is, is, is just completely detrimental to people's overall well-being and, and health. And certainly we add on other medications uh, to ADT. Um, I think we're up to about five or six now that we can add. You know, the, this cumulative effect of, of castrate testosterone and the effect on mental health, depression, dementia, um, bone mineral density issues, um, skeletal muscle loss, these are these are, we know that these are happening. So that these discussions are important. I talk about exercise, talk about um, vitamin D and calcium, and 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 under and making sure these patients understand that these are going to not necessarily make it perfect, but it may make it better, and it keeps their keeps their morale up when they know that if they they have to go exercise three or four times a week, it's going to make them feel better, and it's good for their overall health. And so the counseling once again becomes becomes important on these patients on ADT and, and whatever else we're adding to ADT. So let's let's pivot from uh, prostate cancer and then uh, let's talk about bladder cancer. So um, what are some of the, the key points that you think we should sort of keep in mind with, with survivorship and bladder cancer? And, and, and does that matter a little bit if it's, we're talking about non-muscle invasive disease, which is obviously much more endoscopic versus obviously muscle invasive where there may be significant quality of life changes just from uh, uh, the reconstructive procedure after after uh, after major surgery. Yeah, no, I think you break it down well. I think if we look at the non-muscle invasive disease, I think the, the, the survivorship take-home points are the patient needs to know that you're going to get to know them really well because these visits <laughs> are going to be frequent. They're going to be invasive for cystoscopies. And, and I think it's always the unknown of, is the treatment working? Is the BCG working? Is the pembrolizumab working? Is the surveillance cystoscopy clean? And there's a lot of anxiety that goes into these visits. And they're, and we know that they're Q3 months for, for however long, Q6, you know, one year. I know they're going to be coming in for their six-week treatments, maintenance. I mean, they get to know not just you, but the staff very well. And so I think when we're talking non-muscle invasive survivorship, I think it has to do with the anxiety of the unknown. And the unknowns happen very frequently. It's not a PSA once a year. It's, it's going to be pretty intense follow-up. As you mentioned, with regards to you know somebody with muscle invasive disease, I think the the importance of certainly the surgery and the and the body dysmorphic aspect of, of a radical cystectomy. And um, obviously, even in neobladder, we we don't see it on the outside, but we know on the inside it's, they just feel different. I think that's a that's a it's probably the most important survivorship aspect that we deal with. Hmm. But not to be remiss, I think the neoadjuvant chemotherapy for these patients. I mean, these patients are comorbid; they're often elderly, and and I've seen some of the mo the some of the worst depression and and sort of uh, mental health issues in people that are going through neoadjuvant. Then you try to tell them we're going to do a cystectomy several weeks after that, and they just want to they they don't they don't want to keep going. So I think. Hmm. 
it's the whole aspect of certainly we focus on the surgery because we're surgeons, but it's the whole process and it's a long process. And I think you, you set the stage early for those patients that we're gonna take this one segment at a time. We're gonna do this first, we're gonna get this scan, we're gonna continue chemo, we're gonna get another scan, we're gonna let you recover for a period of time, then we're gonna do this big operation. And you lay it all out, but then you say, we're only gonna focus on this aspect right now because we can't get to the surgery if we don't get through this first. And I think it's, it's once again, setting that timetable. People like a plan. They under, They like to know what's coming. So what about kidney cancer? Um, and, and, you know, again, this, this may be similar to some of the discussions we've had so far, which is obviously, you know, localized kidney cancer, where maybe the, the procedure itself and chronic kidney disease might be your biggest sort of sequelae that you're thinking about, anything about advanced kidney cancer with targeted therapies, immunotherapy. Um, what are sort of the key take-home points and, and do you differentiate again between, between the type of disease they have and, and how you think about them? Yeah, I think for whatever reason, I think kidney cancer probably gets left out in some of the survivorship just because we have drastic effects from prostate cancer treatment and the comorbidities of bladder and the, and the age of testis cancer patients. But you're absolutely right. I mean, I think the conversations with patients about localized kidney cancer is it's, it's important too. I mean, are we going to do a robotic partial nephrectomy? Are we going to do cryotherapy? You know, what's the impact of chronic kidney disease? People don't want to be on dialysis. And oftentimes you can alleviate a lot of anxiety by saying, listen, I can't predict the future, but your likelihood of being on dialysis is very, very low. Even if we have to take your kidney out or, or even if you have a, a temporary um, issue with kidney function. And I think those conversations are just sort of laying out the fact that we have options. You know, this is what I think we should do, but we have these other options. Think about these and then we move forward. Certainly with the with the targeted uh, therapy and immunotherapy combination therapy for uh, for 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 advanced or, or metastatic disease, you know these are underrated uh, unhealth sick patients as well. I mean, some of these patients come in, they're anemic, they're they've got perineoplastic syndromes, and so again, it's a similar conversation as to the patients that are maybe going under ad, neoadjuvant chemotherapy for for muscle invasive disease. It's a very similar conversation of we have. We have to, we were gonna do this up front. If you respond well and you do well, we may take the kidney out later. And these are sort of, it's a very similar conversation as the as a muscle invasive bladder cancer where you're planning to do neoadjuvant and, and cystectomy on. And I think I think we have to to realize again that they 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 want to plan. I mean, I think there was a great there was a great uh, abstract at GeoASCO this year. It was retrospective data, but it was well done and it was decent numbers that said the median time that people are on immunotherapy before a cytoreductive nephrectomy is 11 months. Mm. Honestly, I didn't, I didn't realize it was that long. That gave me some good actionable things to take back to patients say, all right, we're going to plan for six. If it's working, we're going to keep going. And I'll tell them the average is 11. Mm -hmm. So you know your plan for the next year is going to be to continue to push on through the, the combo immunotherapy TKIs, and then we'll decide if you're a candidate for a surgery. So I think those discussions are very similar to the, the muscle invasive bladder cancer patients. And, and finally, let, let's finish with testis cancer. You've sort of alluded to this population several times. You know, you get the young, healthy males, by and large, right? Young, healthy sure. men generally don't have any other medical problems. And now suddenly they have a cancer diagnosis. And, and although, you know, you and I know that thankfully it's a cancer that uh, many, many, many men survive from, right? 98, 99%. Uh, it doesn't mean that they're not going through some treatment sequelae to get to that endpoint in some cases. Sure. Uh, what are some thoughts in this group? 
Yeah, this is a this is a totally different conversation. Um, not surprisingly, based on age and and, and health, um, I think the underrated sort of aspect of survivorship care for these patients is this the the impact of downstream treatment. And we're talking 15, 20, 30 years down the road. There's been some great work looking at secondary malignancies and cardiovascular toxicity from 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 radiotherapy or from chemotherapy, and and I know it's when a 25-year-old walks in your office, you have to discuss these things with them. You don't necessarily, you don't necessarily dwell on it, but I think it's important to mention. And as you go through follow follow up, you mention these things. Um, you're trying to get them through the immediate period uh, first, but I think you know we know there's increased risk of lymphomas and heart disease, and so being honest with them is important. I think the other one, especially in young men that may or may not have children yet, fertility is a big one. And I know conversations with my sexual medicine colleagues and 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 certainly you see the conversations on Twitter every once in a while about the 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 aspects of insurance coverage for sperm banking. This is a huge aspect, and I think as a community, uh, as, as oncologists, it's important to to have these conversations as well. And I think there's no treatment that needs to be done that urgently for the most part that you can't have these conversations and try to to arrange um, these these sort of um, sperm banking options. No, that's great. No, Zach, I really appreciate uh, your, your thoughtfulness. It was, uh, I think, an underappreciated topic, but but probably something that anybody that treats cancer should take a little bit of time and almost like it's almost like slow down mm-hmm. before you you start getting off to that running start. And and as you sort of alluded to, um, map out. You know, it's almost like you don't want to you don't want to overwhelm the patient, but I also think at the same time mapping out some of the path and then compartmentalizing. You know, we yeah. are here. Yes. And there's other stuff, but I think the way you phrase that uh, really, really is very intuitive. Um, but Zach, really uh, appreciate. I, I know you're you're heading out with the family, so we appreciate very much uh, you taking some time on a on a Friday afternoon uh, to to have this conversation. Very, very much appreciate your expertise. Jay, thanks so much. I had a really good chat time, and I hope uh, folks find it useful. Thanks so much for your time as well. I want to thank our audience for our time and certainly for more information, please visit us at auanet.org university. Zach, take care. Thanks, Jay. Take care.